The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello, I'm Katie Balls and welcome to The Edition, a look inside this week's issue of The Spectator for the writers behind the pieces. In this week's episode... After mass protests and a campaign to remove historically questionable statues, are we seeing the death of the liberal ideal? Next, those parents hoping to send their children back to school before the summer holidays this week had their hopes dashed as the government moved its target to September. So what's behind the government U-turn and what guarantee is there that pupils will be back in the autumn? Finally, As the government grants us permission to leave the house, plans are afoot across the country to explore the great British outdoors. But if you come across an ash tree, take your time to stop and stare, for it may not be around for long. First up, are we witnessing the death of liberalism? In his cover piece this week, Douglas Murray says that we must resist a new era of intolerance. To discuss, I'm joined now by Douglas and The Spectator's Kate Andrews. Douglas, in this week's Spectator cover piece, you say what we are seeing is nothing more or less than the death of the liberal ideal. What do you mean by that? Well, the liberal ideal itself is something that's been hard to pin down for some people in recent years, not least because in America it's become synonymous with being left wing. The true liberal idea isn't that. It is something which I think actually the current day political left and right should be able to agree on, which are basically the foundational blocks of the modern uh, democratic order to do with uh, freedom, to do with rule of law, and uh, much more. And of course, within that, the idea that if uh, you live in a democratic society, you have to know how to tolerate the opinions of those who differ from you. The thing that I say I think is, is certainly making that ideal strain is a generation of people who our universities have educated into being stupider by the time they've left than they were when they went in, to have an incredibly hostile view of the society which has nurtured them and given them everything that they have, and to regard themselves as being completely right. Uh, And what I mean by that is, as I say in the piece somewhere, that this tendency, which has become known as woke, which is almost too jokey a name for the incredibly authoritarian ideals that the followers of this idea perpetrate, is that the woke mind uh, believes that it is right, where the liberal mind believes that it needs to learn. Uh, The woke mind is totally unwilling to hear other points of view, wishes to shut them down, and an awful lot more. Its view of history, as we've seen in recent in recent days with the iconoclastic outbursts in city after city, its view of history is that you shouldn't try to understand history, but you should stand over it and judge it because you know and people in history didn't. And this this year zero aspiration is extraordinarily dangerous. It's very totalitarian, extraordinarily unwilling to give an inch. And I think it presents an extraordinary threat to what most of us regard, whatever our political views, left or right, as being the liberal order. And just briefly, Douglas, just if you look at the events of the past few weeks, what in particular, in terms of the ways you think this has started to manifest itself to show that liberalism is under threat? 
I think that in particular it comes, its, its most recent manifestation is using the perfectly legitimate anger to the behaviour of one policeman in Minnesota and using that anger to push forward very much unrelated political projects. What I mean by that is Black Lives Matter, for instance, which has been around for some years. Black Lives Matter, which is a far-left organisation, which states on its own website in Britain that its aim is to, among other things, bring down capitalism and what it calls white supremacy and much more, that Black Lives Matter is used as a sort of battering ram by people. Because, after all, you should always be worried, I think we should all be worried about movements that, that claim to be something which is unopposable. I mean, there is absolutely nobody that I can think of in the public square who thinks that black lives don't matter or would state that black lives don't matter. And so what happens is that a movement that claims that, that makes itself effectively unopposable pushes its way through the political realm and starts to try to assert things which very much should be opposed. That people who claim they want to bring down capitalism should be opposed. People who claim that our cities and our countries would be safer if we had no policing should be opposed. And I'm very much afraid that people have been basically cowed into not opposing these things, not opposing the destruction of parts of their cities, not opposing the bringing down of historical monuments, not opposing the defacing of statues to the great men and women of our past, not opposed to people who think that they can clamber over and deface the Cenotaph War Memorials to the dead of the two world wars, People who have basically been bullied into not being able to oppose these things. These things should all be opposed and people shouldn't feel they can't do so simply because part of the movement that claims to be doing this calls itself Black Lives Matter. Kate, you've also written this week's magazine and you've written about some of the long time building up anger in America in terms of how the police operate, which have led to some of these protests. But I wondered... When you hear Douglas speak just then, I mean, do you think that liberalism is under threat when you look at recent events? I think liberalism has been under threat for a long time now. I think that Douglas quite eloquently states the difference between liberalism and, and wokeness in his piece. He talks about how the liberal mind is inquiring, the woke mind is dogmatic, liberals are humble and forgiving, and the woke mind is is not. I completely agree with that, and I think we've been seeing that on university campuses and in many aspects of our culture for some time now. I suppose I don't take the same view in light of the protests in recent weeks. I think that the media, understandably, has given a lot of attention to the minority that would use this as an opportunity to do things that they would do at any other protest, right? The far left will never let a good protest go to waste. They'll show up, and in this case, we have seen some looting, some rioting, some actions that we're not comfortable with in a democratic society. But I think the vast majority are reacting to the fact that in America, a country that the UK stands in solidarity with from an economic perspective, a historical perspective, a foreign policy perspective, and now really from a human rights perspective. It is it is a country that has struggled for decades now to get its relationship between its authority and its citizens right. And unfortunately, when things go wrong, it is the African-American community that, that suffers most from that. I think the statistics back that up, but I think that these videos, you know, they speak a thousand statistics in the way that a picture speaks a thousand words. There's just this very clear, unfair treatment. And I think that the vast majority coming out to protest aren't woke. 
they're sympathetic to what they've seen. They, they want justice for George Floyd and for the countless black men that he represents. And I would be hesitant to lump them all in to the same category of, you know, woke opportunists. I, I think that there is a liberal moment here. I think liberals can be on the side of the peaceful protesters and say, enough is enough. I think liberals can say, we want clear structural reform to a police system, especially in America, that is so different from the UK. Here in the UK, citizens are, are policed by consent, and in the States, citizens are policed by force. So I wouldn't want to overlook that opportunity that I think we have as liberals to make the case right now specifically in favor of the black community in America, but I think that can be extended with, with various injustices for, for equality for all. Douglas, if we look at some of the movements in the UK in light of uh, the death of George Floyd, there's been a renewed push to remove certain statues. We've seen one statue go in Bristol, Edward Colson, a, a slave owner, historically. Do you think this suggests a lack of tolerance, this movement? Or is it just the case that lots of people are thinking, actually, why do we need to have this as a you know historic monument? We could just put it in a museum and learn from it still. I come back to this point. I think that things are being pushed through which are not true. And I think we have to be incredibly careful, as I said in the previous issue of The Spectator, incredibly careful about what we assert and push through at a moment like this. Firstly, I respect the fact that significant numbers of marches are coming out because they think that what happened to George Floyd is not an exception, but some kind of rule. All the figures show it's very much an exception in the United States. And what I worry, among other things, is that a picture of policing in America has been built on this and on previous cases. But we're still talking about small numbers of cases where this happens. I mean, just to, it's worth keeping this in mind. In, in, last year, in 2019, there were 10 unarmed African-Americans who were killed by the police. And in half of those cases there turned out to have been an attack on officers before they were shot. Now, this is this is terrible, obviously. And in two of those cases, so half the cases where people didn't attack the police first, uh, the police who did that were charged. And just as, by the way, the man who was responsible for the death of Mr. Floyd has been charged. So we're not talking about a sort of a rampant problem here of the kind that's been depicted in recent days, where somebody like MSNBC's Joy Reid says that African-Americans are being hunted in their country. Hunted. This is the picture, this, this, I think, erroneous picture, deeply unfair picture of the United States, is the one that's being perpetrated worldwide at the moment. And, and I have to say, I'm very suspicious about some of this, not just about the protests in the UK, but across Europe. Germany doesn't have the policing issue, which I agree to some extent America has. Germany doesn't have that issue. Why are thousands and thousands of Germans turning up on the streets because of, of this case? Why has there been looting in Stockholm? Why have there been riots in Brussels? To a great extent, what is happening at the moment is a depiction of the United States going around the world and a whole set of other factors coming in to make people behave in these ways. And I think there is something very suspicious about it, something very strange about it. And Kate herself just did it. She referred to the countless numbers of African-Americans who've been shot by the police in America in recent years. And that is not a fair depiction of the American police's actions. I don't doubt for a moment, I agree, that there have been terrible abuses by segments of the American police force. I do agree that there is 
a problem here that needs to be looked into. But I also think, among other things, that, that we have to, and Kate well knows this, is that we have to look at the other factors that also exist in America, the most clear of which, the one that obviously makes it different from policing in the UK, for instance, is the fact that in America, because of the Second Amendment, uh, which we can do nothing about at this stage, it seems to me, because of the Second Amendment, America has the most heavily armed populace in the developed world. And, and obviously that means that police act differently than they do in the UK. And what I worry about, a final thought on this, if I may, is what I worry about in this is that we are all in our society falling for a particular trap, which is the trap that the radical left and others have left, which is everything in our society, everything, can be explained by discrimination. That if the police kill an unarmed black man, it is only because of discrimination. That if incarceration rates are at a certain level, it's only because of discrimination. And I think this is one of the roots for this, of this deeply unfair and unjust analysis that has now washed across the planet in its views of the United States. So over the past two decades, nearly 30,000 Americans have died at the hands of the police. Some of these have been gunshots, others have been tasers, strongholds, head injuries, really torturous stuff. And whilst it is the case that it isn't comparably a large number of black men or any men last year uh, who were killed by the police unarmed, African Americans are still four times more likely than their white counterparts to be killed unarmed. They're disproportionately killed by gunshots fired by the police than their white counterparts. I think that it is okay to have a moment where we talk about this. And I don't want it to be from a woke perspective. I want it to be from a liberal perspective. But I think us liberals need to acknowledge that perhaps we've dropped the ball a bit. I mean, one of the reasons that Black Lives Matter has done so well and has gotten so much funding and become, you know, an international slogan is because the left have put a lot of time and effort into that campaign. Where is the liberal equivalent? I'm sure it exists. I'm certain it exists, that there are groups out there that come from a conservative or liberal perspective that want to see racial equality. But why haven't we been putting our time and our money into those groups? Why haven't we been acknowledging this? If we look at the statue of Edward Colston, which was ripped down in Bristol and thrown into the harbor, they were trying to, the citizens of Bristol were trying for years to go through the liberal institutions that I think Douglas and I would uphold, trying to follow the law, trying to do it peacefully, and they were ignored. They weren't listened to. The institutions failed them. Now, I'm not condoning what actually happened, and we've seen in America this week a a statue was pulled down in Virginia and somebody got severely hurt. I don't think that on principle and in practice, pulling down statues with rope is the way to go, but I think this is an important moment for us to acknowledge that perhaps we haven't been paying enough attention. Perhaps our institutions were looking the other way when we needed them to be looking at black lives and the lives of ethnic minorities. And as Douglas says, this is a very complex issue. We need to talk about poverty and unemployment. And we shouldn't just look at it through a racial lens. But I don't mind pausing for a few weeks and doing so because I think especially in America, it is something that has been overlooked by a population that was happy for their cops to keep them safe, but didn't realize who was paying the price for what they did. 
Douglas, when we look at your piece, we're talking right now, and we have been mainly on this podcast about recent specific events. But one of the things that you look back as probably a more gradual societal change that you argue has happened. And you mentioned, for example, the Spectator Step for Students cover, and this sense that the young of today, as you as you might put it, have a different mindset than those that came before. I wanted firstly. A, of course, what is that? But secondly, I mean, we often hear when we, you know, look at politicians today that they were radical back in their university days, you know, that everyone has that phase where they are more radical. So what's different about this one? Because it's always slightly been the case that you have younger generations who will go further than older generations. Yes, of course it is. It's um, the history of the struggle within politics in our own country as well as everywhere else. People throw up ideas, they're contested in the public space, sometimes they move forward, sometimes they're held back. I think one of the things that's striking to me at any rate with this is the fact that it is entirely unforgiving and I think uninformed about our past whilst insisting that everyone else educate themselves. I mean, we see a very strange ignorant, zero-sum game being played about our own past in Britain, not to mention other countries, where, for instance, uh, just yesterday, William Gladstone, one of our most distinguished prime ministers in the UK, had his name taken off a hall in uh, Liverpool because his father had owned slaves. To go through history and to work out whose parents did something we now disapprove of and thus erase the name of such a distinguished statesman from our past is for many of us an example of a form of cultural vandalism. Because the problem we see, and this this, this obviously is most epitomised by the attacks, repeated attacks, not just on the cenotaph to our war dead, but the attacks on the statue of Winston Churchill. What we see from this is that nobody will pass muster. That a generation seems to have come up as sort of Khmer Rouge-like sentiment among them, which believes we should start from a year zero, which believes that everyone who went before us woefully failed to live up to our own current standards, and that as a result, we must basically expunge their memory from the public square. What we have after this, who knows, but it's an extraordinarily unforgiving view of literally everybody who came before us. I think it's very dangerous. I think that it will see an eradication of an understanding of our history, a genuine and nuanced understanding of our history, and instead reduces history to this zero-sum game. Who in history has lived up to my high standards? The answer will be nobody. And so we'll become this people without history, who thinks they know everything about it and knows nothing. And Kate, finally, do you share any of those concerns? Because I think if we look at the Edward Colston statue example, it seems, and we spoke about on the Coffee House Shots podcast, it seemed to be one of those clear examples where I think it was, you could see how people quite quickly came up with an argument that this person had little merit as a statue. But now, as Douglas touched on, it's spreading, you know, to figures like Winston Churchill, William Gladstone, through what his father did. So is that something that you are concerned about? I am worried about it if people continue to take these decisions into their own hands. And that's why liberal structures and institutions are so important now. And I'm particularly worried that people are losing faith in them. There's some people coming up through the next generations that 
perceive the world through a woke viewpoint, but it's certainly not all young people. I mean, you had people graffitiing Winston Churchill statue, and then you had young people out the next day cleaning it up. It is not everyone. It is not every protester, and it's certainly not every young person coming up through the U.S. and the U.K. HBO Max decided this week that it would take down Gone with the Wind, and it's going to put it up again in the future. We haven't had a date with some context. Not quite sure what that means, but all of a sudden, as soon as it was taken down, Gone with the Wind hits number one on Amazon's bestsellers list, right? They're, the liberal has to trust the individual. The liberal has to trust, whether you're young or old, whether you went to university or whoever you are, that you are going to be sensible enough to be able to make good decisions for yourself and to contribute to societal discourse. So I think we need to look out for our institutions because I suspect that as people operate within them and make them better for everybody, that we will come to the right answers and that we won't have to do it as we've seen this past week. Again, the minority of people trying to take those decisions into their own hands. Thank you, Douglas. Thank you, Kate. Next, the government has scrapped its pledge to reopen primary schools for all before the summer holidays after criticisms from unions and parents. But what does this mean for parents? In this week's magazine, James Forsyth writes about how the lockdown is exacerbating the attainment gap between the rich and the poor. He joins me now alongside with Melanie McDonough, a writer for Coffeehouse and a parent to two children trying to study at home. James, in this week's politics column in The Spectator, you write that normality won't return until schools do. But that means we're going to be waiting for some time, doesn't it? Because the government have altered their plans and now they want to get schools back by September. What's behind the change in approach? The essential problem is that there is not enough space. The government has set the size of a class bubble at 15, when the average primary school class size in England is 27. So do you do the maths? You need twice as much space to teach the same number of kids. And that space isn't available. And if the kids are not in the same classroom, you'd need more teachers because you couldn't have a same teacher teaching them, can't be in two places at once. And this is the problem. And I think the real danger is it, this now puts real pressure on the plan to get all year groups, both primary and secondary, back in September. And the big worry is that if you're not, if they aren't back in October, they're going to miss a whole year of education because Sage are so worried about a second spike in the winter. But I think it's a pretty basic rule that if something isn't opened at the beginning of October, it's not going to be opened up until the end of February. Melanie, Gavin Williamson's been leading the charge here. We've had lots of different things from him and he initially was talking about getting all primary schools back before the summer. Clearly he's been coming up against the unions here, also advice from scientists. Are you impressed by his performance? Uh, No, I'm not. Um, I was listening to David Blunkett yesterday and he showed so much more Hotspur, so much more kind of willingness to engage than Gavin Williamson has done. It's um, simply embarrassing. He was saying that there's been a a lack of a can-do spirit. In fact, there's been a can't-do spirit. And I'm afraid it comes from the top. He hasn't really attempted to engage with the um, unions in good time. And when the time did come for him to try and get them on the side, he was um, unwilling, really, to get them to confront with the science because there was a meeting between teaching unions and the scientists and I gather from one person there that it was actually rather painful to witness. Um, What was needed was a much more combative approach from Gavin Williamson and we really didn't get it. 
And um, it's not just primary schools here, because all the focus has been on smaller children, but um, it's a real problem for older children. And I would have thought that a lot of the difficulties don't actually apply to them. They understand about social distancing, they can make their own way to school, they don't have to be picked up, and they seem to have been left out of the equation altogether. James, before we go for a full Gavin Williamson pylon, you write in your column about the R budget and the unions have said, you know, it's not safe. We've heard that a lot. But the R budget is something the government talks about. And we currently have a situation where next week you can go to a betting shop, but depending on the age of your child, they cannot go to school. So isn't this a decision that actually goes above Gavin Williamson's head, potentially to number 10? Yeah, so the, the, the issue here is that the government says, that, you know, the whole aim of their policy is that the R should not go above one. And that's, so that's the, the reproductive rate of the virus. And at the moment, the government's estimate is that the R is between 0.7 and 0.9, which means that you obviously don't have much headroom. And as you say, the government is choosing to spend its R budget on getting non-essential retail open, for example. And I think that is a kind of odd set of priorities, especially because, you know, I I think people are probably kind of not exactly in the mood to go shopping right now. And then the second problem is no one knows how much things cost in the R budget. This is the problem. It, it, it It is essentially educated guesswork to work out what bringing back schools would do to the R budget. Now, I think if you look around Europe and see those countries that are further down the road in terms of getting children back into education, and as Melanie says, you know, it's this this matters hugely for kids in secondary school as well as kids in primary school. You know, the economic dislocation might be caused primarily by primary school age children because you know they need someone at home to look after them in a way that secondary school children don't. But you know, secondary school children these are hugely important years for their education and their future life chances. And I think that the I think the government should be prioritising getting schools back over pretty much anything else. It's hard to see what a better way to spend that R budget is than on schools. Melanie, just on that, if we we can look at what the unions are saying, but as James touches on, a lot of this is coming from the government scientists advisory committee SAGE they are suggesting quite a lot of caution A class bubble sizes, we also have the two meter rule. Do you think ultimately what's gone wrong here is the government should be overruling SAGE? Well, I don't actually understand the science here. As I understand it, children are particularly unlikely to contract coronavirus. Um, they may possibly be carriers, but they're very likely unlikely to fall victim to it. In the case of primary children, you've got a problem in terms of pick-up and drop-off, um, where parents might conceivably make contact. And you've obviously got problems in a staff room, but I think teachers are sufficiently aware to be able to guard against that. But you've actually got an age cohort which is the least likely in the entire population to contract the bloody thing. So I do not see why the R figure has got to be unmodified when it comes to assessing risk here. I think there has been a meeting between teaching unions and and scientists, as I say, under government auspices, and it doesn't seem to have yielded sufficient fruits. And I think the scientists need to be much more assertive in saying that the R rate isn't uniform throughout the population. James, we're hearing a lot about the two-metre rule, clearly also at Social Bubbles, the fact that it can be moved. There seems to be a sense within government that because they expect some of the restrictions and some of the advice to be relaxed by September, it's going to be possible to get all pupils back. But say things are still difficult, you still have SAGE suggesting you know, extra caution. Do you think the fact that there does seem to be such a growing public backlash and also Tory core voters really do want their children to go back to school at some point this year, that that would mean that 
even if, say, the unions, along with the scientists, don't give Boris Johnson the easy green light he wants, we might see the government proceed anyway. Yes, because I think patience will snap if schools don't go back in September. I also think that, you know, that if they aren't back in September, kids aren't going to be back until March. And that is missing a whole year of education. I think it's very hard to see how you would justify denying children a whole year of education and also I mean imagine how much wider the inequality gap will get we already know that kids in in better off households are doing 30% more homeschooling and homework than kids in less well-off households right you stretch that out over an entire year and the educational divide at the end of it is going to be massive you know in the last decade the UK has made quite a bit of progress in terms of reducing the attainment gap between rich and poor I have a horrible feeling that this virus is going to wipe out all of that progress unless schools get back PDQ. I don't actually buy that figure that there's a 30% gap between private and state pupils. I think it's much bigger than that because, on the whole, private schools are providing children with actual classes, virtual classes, but actual classes with a school day and a school curriculum. It is simply not happening in state schools. There you've got more or less teachers assigning homework and it may or may not be submitted and it may or may not be marked. Um, There is absolutely no comparison in qualitative terms between the teaching that private schools are on the whole getting and the absence of teaching in the case of state school pupils. And it's a genuinely worrying gap. We're losing half a year and already there's noise about cancelling next year's GCSEs, I gather, from one secondary school head teacher. And he wants to establish a kind of cohort of the willing among heads. So you get together those teachers, those heads, who are really proactive and are genuinely worried about the present situation and they can actually set the agenda and they can set the momentum to lead the rest. And finally, Melanie, what's been your experience as a parent of trying to get your children to learn from home? Well, both my children got up with some reluctance at quarter to ten, physically physically pulled out of bed. Um, were this an actual school term, they would actually be in a classroom. So for, to begin with, there is no particular reason why they should actually start a school day at all, um, unless it's with um, actual parental duress. Schooling is not happening I can't actually describe to you the gulf between what is not happening um, from the state schools and the experience of um, friends of my children who are actually being taught, admittedly virtually, by their schools and by their teachers. You have education happening in one part of the population and you don't in the other. And it's really, really worrying. And finally, James, have you got any homeschooling tips for the nation? So our kids are six and three. So our problem is not them sleeping in until quarter to ten. Quite, quite. (laughs) We dream of that day. I think homeschooling is challenging. It's difficult. I think also kids need the company of other children. They they learn. You know, there there is a benefit to socialisation. There's a reason we all don't homeschool our children. Not only because not all of us are naturally gifted teachers, but also kids need the company of other children. Thanks, James and Melanie. And finally, Britain's ash trees are suffering a sickness of their own with ash dieback spreading across the country. According to Julian Glover in this week's magazine, as many as 9 out of 10 British ash trees could be wiped out. So what can be done to save the particular beauty of the British ash? Julian joins me now down the line along with Valerie True, a professor at the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research at the University of Arizona. Valerie is the author of Tree Stories, The History of the World Written in Rings, which is reviewed by Philip Marsden in this week's magazine. Julian, you write in this week's magazine about another pandemic sweeping the nation, the death of British ash trees. 
What's behind this? Yeah, I hate to add to the national sense of gloom, but there's other things to be worried about. And one of them is what's happening to our trees across across England. It's not just what's happening to the ash, but that's a very prominent thing right now. And it's particularly prominent because the ash is such a common tree. You see it across the landscape. I'm speaking to you in Derbyshire, and it's in our upland limestone landscape here. It is absolutely the tree that you see by the roads, in the fields, in the wonderful in the wonderful valleys, and it's not healthy. There's a disease which is commonly known as ash dieback, and it's been affecting ash trees across Europe. It reached the UK a few years ago. It seems to have been first reported in 2012, but scientists I spoke to say it's probably been here a bit longer than that. And it's slowly killing the ash tree. It's not a wave that's slicing through the population straight away. But it makes them sick, it, they lose their leaves, they start to look straggly, and they die. And it's spreading north. It's now been in every English county. You can see it in lots of woodlands. And I was just saddened this spring to realise as the leaves came back to the trees, they weren't as healthy as they had been. And the ash is a beautiful tree. It would be a terrible thing to lose. And it looks like we are going to lose a lot. Valerie, in your line of work, you have a, a deeper understanding of trees than I think most people listening to this podcast. I wondered... Why is it that some trees have more genetic variability than others? Because when you look at ash trees, one of the reasons that despite the problems Julian's laid out, they haven't been wiped out as quickly as elms is because they are more genetically diverse. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, one, trees have been around in evolution for a long time. So some trees occurred, uh, conifers, for instance, occurred much earlier in evolution. And as a result, are, are simpler in, in, in their anatomy and structure and have a less genetic diversity as well. And then there's the aspect of the biogeography of trees, the the wider spread species is... Uh, you know, the, the less subject it's going to be to to diseases that occur in, in particular places. Um, so the more uh, genetic diversity it has, as Julian was saying, the more places it can inhabit, and that's going to help it out, generally speaking. Um, Julian, you mentioned in your piece that trees are very in vogue at the moment in British politics. We quite recently, even though it feels a bit further ago, had a general election where every party was pledging to build trees. But on the issue you write about, do you think there is enough attention in both, you know, in terms of from politicians and just the general wider public on this issue? I think people do care about trees. They love them. If you talk about planting trees, you're popular at the general election. Uh, as you say, there was a competition between parties to plant trees, which which went completely out of control, a sort of hyperinflation of of arboreal interests. And the chances of any of that actually happening were quite, quite low. I think the Labour one would have required several trees to be planted a second for the next 20 or 30 years. But that does show people care. It's a popular thing. I feel, though, that we aren't perhaps quite as connected to our landscapes and to nature as we should be. We love them, we visit them, but we don't really know how they work. We don't understand them. And I think when ash dieback was first reported about eight years ago. It did get a bit of interest and a bit of coverage. And occasionally you see hopeful stories in the papers reporting a survey somewhere. There was one in France the other day that says maybe it won't be quite as bad as we thought and everybody cheers up. But it's a bit like one of those background things. People think there's nothing they can do about it. They don't understand quite what the processes are, uh, quite what the serious 
nature of it will be that we will lose most, although not all, of the ash trees in our landscape. We will have hopefully some resilient ones recover at the same time. Uh, we've already lost the elm. I've got a elm tree outside here that's shot back from, from its roots, but they die quite young when they get attacked by the Dutch elm disease, which wiped them out. Uh, we've seen other trees in under pressure, even the oak tree, the sort of emblem of England, acute oak disease. There's all sorts of things happening which put trees under pressure. And there are things we can do to help them. We can treat them differently in our landscape. And so it's important we don't just say a tree is a good thing, but we understand what makes a tree a healthy thing. And we realise the trees we have today won't be there tomorrow unless we look after them. Valerie, do you agree with that? Because trees clearly do have an important cultural impact, but I don't think it's necessarily the case, as Julian touches on, that we appreciate that on a daily basis. So I wondered, I mean, firstly that, but also how do you think trees can be used to tell us things about our own history? Yeah, so that's exactly my field of expertise. I'm a dendrochronologist. I study the rings in trees to look at the history, not only of trees, but also of the climate and, and human history, and, and especially how those three uh, are linked with each other. Our history is, is dependent uh, on wood and on trees. Wood has been one of the most accessible resources for humans from early on. We use, we've used wood for construction, for cooking, for energy, for everything really that we depend on. And, but with that comes deforestation, obviously you can't use wood without uh, using the forest. And so I, I, think, I think Julian is right in that there is an uh, ongoing effort, especially politically now, to start planting trees. Uh, or to to recover from some of that deforestation. But I think it's very important to point out that planting trees is one thing. That's the easy part. Maintaining those trees and, and keeping them alive and making sure that they don't go up in forest fires or they don't they're not subject to diseases or to droughts under under climate change and so forth making those planted trees, those seedlings into a healthy forest, that is the difficult part. And, and no one, no politician is, is really uh, paying much attention to that. And especially in the realm of, of mitigating climate change, it's not about how many trees you plant. It's about how much carbon those trees capture. And they only capture carbon as long as they're alive. And the longer they live, the more ca carbon they're going to be capturing. So. So it's a much more complex issue than, than only planting trees. It's, it's keeping them alive for a long period of time that is, that is crucial there. Yes, Julian, on that, it's become quite fashionable to go on these websites where you can choose to plant XXX number of trees and then not really worry about it after that, perhaps feel quite good about yourself. But in your piece, you talk about other things we should be doing and you know, biodiversity. So what do you think, given that there is, you know, public appreciation of trees and political interest we need to be doing which is the most constructive thing. Well we're wading into a dangerous territory here because there is a, a big debate about whether planting trees is the right thing to do with those ugly plastic tree guards and a quite commercial way or whether we should let natural regeneration happen just fence off bits of land and the sea forest come back. Uh, partly that movement called rewilding which which is doing very well in the UK. I think in the end we need a balance of the two. But yes, it's looking after trees. For me, I care about forests and woodland. We need more of that in Britain. But but one of the things I love that I think defines our landscape 
are the single trees, the, the hedgerow trees, the field trees that mark the old boundaries of walls, perhaps things that have been taken out. You can see them. If I look out the window where I am here in Derbyshire, I can see a great hillside across with these single trees up on the horizon. And they're under pressure. They're under pressure because lots don't grow anymore. They, these, these are the ones that shot up 100, 200 years ago uh, when farming was a bit different. Um, so we're not replacing them with young single trees. Also, uh, the way we farm, if you chuck loads of nitrates onto the soil and you use all sorts of chemicals to, to manage other weeds, if you use big tractors to compress the soil, but maybe to plough and do some of the farm work we do today, that squashes the roots. So even those noble oak trees you can see in the sort of classic England parkland that every spectator reader would secretly dream of having a house in, they can be really sick. They might look all right, but they're not healthy. They don't have a long-term future unless we begin to let them breathe and give them some space and treat them a bit more kindly. And people are beginning to do that. But it's some simple things, like if you have hedges and you cut them with a hedge cutter, a big flail machine, if you don't stick a couple of stakes in, big posts next to young shoots that might become a tree, the tractor will just flatten them. So you've got to work to, to think what are going to be the big iconic trees of the next 200 years. Otherwise, we will enjoy the sight of trees today in our fields and not have them in the future. We will, I think, have a lot more woodland, though. That, that's coming back. Our wood cover is increasing. There's a good story, too. But I care about the diversity of trees, the types of trees and how we manage their appearance in the landscape. It's making sure they're beautiful as well as just present. I think there, there's there's absolute truth in that. I mean, there it's necessary if, if we want to you know, uh, have people care about this world and about, you know, going forward in a future that we all want to live in. It's important that we preserve and maintain the beauty around us, including uh, those individual trees. It's inspiring, not just to Julian, but to many people. And I think it's important to, to pay attention both to the functional as to the beautiful. And that's why trees are so great, honestly. They're not only functional, they don't only give us uh, a lot of resources, but they also provide us with, with beauty and, and with inspiration. And just briefly on your work, I mean, you've looked at how you can use tree rings to study the Earth's past climate. Do you think if more methods such as this probably bring humankind closer to trees, I suppose, in a way of understanding? I, I, I hope so, to trees and to wood, as I, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, to me, um, one of the drivers of, of my scientific research is, is the problem of, of climate change that we are uh, facing as a, as a global community. And trees provide one way, one solution to, to solve that problem. But also, I think what I've learned from writing this book and from my research is how closely people and climate and people and trees have been intertwined in, in the past. And that's not something that goes away or that's different today, just because we've shifted from using wood from energy to fossil fuel as an energy source. That doesn't mean that we that our history is not still closely related to trees. So I think it's a great thing that people feel this uh, intuitive link to trees and I think there's nothing but positive things that can come out of that. And finally, Jean, I just wanted to go back to the ash tree and I wondered, do you feel optimistic overall? I mean, you've highlighted lots of the problems, but can you see a ray of light in terms of the British ash tree being saved and perhaps connected to that? Should we try and go and admire them while we can? I wrote 
my piece for The Spectator this week because I wanted to find out. That's that cliche of journalism, but it's true this time. I wanted to find out what was really happening. And, and writing an article is a good way to make yourself ring somebody up who knows what they're talking about and ask them questions. And I have seen the ash in Derbyshire get sicker and sicker. They're not all gone. And some are in full leaf and looking healthy still. And I wondered how many more months, how many more years do we have left to see them and what will replace them? So I spoke to various people and I came away a little bit optimistic. The sad news is that 70, 80, maybe 90% of the ash trees that are alive in Britain, in England today, are going to die probably of this disease. The good news is that some are going to be resilient. There are ash trees which can keep going. Uh, they don't seem to be affected by this fungus. There's quite a lot of diversity in ash trees. So we're, we're sort of going to have a bit of a hunger games of trees. Some are going to make it and some aren't. And of course, the ones that do survive, maybe even a third of them if we're lucky, but probably less than that. But the ones that do survive will send shoots out and young versions of those trees will recover and come back. So we are going to have the ash in our landscape. What we're not going to do is have the great sort of almost single species woodlands that we have today if we get it right that might not be a bad thing you don't want to depend on a single type of anything but I do love the beauty of those great gnarled old ash there's one in Shropshire I know in a village called Tugford possibly they claim the oldest in England I'm hoping to get to Shropshire soon as soon as the lockdown rules allow uh, I shall go and look at that tree uh, I hope it's still alive and I hope it will be for the next few decades but I fear maybe not for the next few centuries. Thank you, Julian, and thank you, Valerie. That's it for this week. Do pick up this week's magazine to read all the pieces discussed, as well as Matthew Paris in defence of statue toppling, a diary from Lord Jonathan Sumption, and a profile of Boris Johnson's new right-hand man by Camilla Tomini. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk.